I'm Christopher Leiden, and this is Open Source, with the historian of the world after World War I, Adam Tooze. He's an English man who teaches at Yale. The Deluge is his new book. A lot of it is about the zigzag path of the young economic giant, the United States, toward the center of a new global order. In 1916, two years into the war, Americans had re-elected the president who'd kept us out of the battle. By the summer of 1917, the same Woodrow Wilson had committed the United States to fighting alongside Britain and France against Germany. I asked Adam Tooze to help us understand the American hand in that war. Well, I think the first thing to recognize is just quite what a shock the rise of the United States is. If you you trawl through the immense volume of literature that's been produced about the July crisis in 1914, which is now so preoccupying Europe in the commemoration of this terrible event in July and August 1914, what is astonishing is the absence, the, the sheer absence of the United States from any of those calculations. The United States is not a factor um, in European power politics uh, in 1914. And as you're saying, two years later, uh, by the late summer of 1916, all eyes, all eyes across the capitals of Europe and Asia are fixed on the United States. And that shift, the sheer suddenness of it, um, is, I think, the first thing to understand. America's rise as an economic power had been foreseen, and it was visible, really, from the enormously rapid recovery from the Civil War and the dramas of American economic growth in the, 19, in the 1880s and then through in the Gilded Age of the turn of the century. But this sudden shift to the center of global power takes everybody by surprise in its speed. And that, I think, has to be factored in. On the one hand, it produces a sense of alarm uh, on the part of the British, the French, uh, the Germans, uh, and even more in the case of the the Japanese. Nobody quite knows what to make of, of America and its potential power. And on the other hand, within America itself, there's a profound uncertainty and ease about this new role. I mean, Woodrow Wilson um, is not just, as it were, pandering to American isolationism or some part, some d- demand on the part of the American public to know, have no part in this war. It's a, it's a much deeper thing. I mean, on the one hand, it's strategic. Um, he, he, what he believes that America will exercise its power more effectively from outside. But it's also a cultural politics in that a, uh, an American like uh, Woodrow Wilson is profoundly hostile to the militarist culture of Europe. It's identified with an old world of which he doesn't want America to be part. Very different from somebody like Teddy Roosevelt, for whom World War I potentially is the great opportunity to demonstrate that America is a power like others. And uh, Roosevelt doesn't really aim for American supremacy in the sense of the qualitative difference of America. He simply wants America to prove that it's power like others, that it can, as it were, go toe-to-toe with the British or the Germans or the Japanese. Whereas Wilson really is aiming, to my mind, for a truly distinctive position of the United States. And it's that aspiration, this desire to somehow separate America qualitatively from world affairs, the question of whether America can be separated, separated qualitatively from the strategies of other powers, whether it can really assert a position of absolute supremacy for itself. And that's really what's at stake in these vital months between the fall of 1916 and the summer of 1917, where, as you said, America moves from a position, Woodrow Wilson's administration moves from a position of peace without victory, attempting to leverage a peace from outside using a veto, essentially, 
uh, veto power to American engagement. Never, to be honest, really full engagement. So I think the, the next ambiguity to stress is that, that America's engagement is conditional. This is very unlike 1941-42. The FDR is much more willing to commit America wholeheartedly to the Allied cause, to call, to call into existence the United Nations and to put America squarely behind it. Wilson insists on his position neither as an ally, always as an associate, of the British and the French in the war. And that's what then very much comes to the fore in the fall of 1918, when the Germans call upon America to broker a peace. And Wilson, rather than allying himself with Britain and France, which is what the Republicans were calling for, and threaten Wilson for, with impeachment on these grounds, rather than simply saying, well, I can't talk to Germany without talking first to London and Paris, enters quite freely into bilateral negotiations with Germany, precisely at the moment that tens of thousands of American soldiers are actually now being killed in some of the bitterest fighting of the war. And there again, you see this intense ambiguity. What is America's role? Is America just the combatant allied with Britain and France to make a British, French and American victory in the name, for instance, of democracy or Western liberalism? Or is America really a superordinate, a third party, a potential arbiter of a struggle between the powers of the old world in which Britain and France, really from Washington's point of view, would be no better fundamentally than Germany. They all started it. They were all equally to blame. Britain and France emerged the victors, but don't really have any entitlement to claim a position of superiority or any particular claim on America as an ally. And that really, I think, is the deep ambiguity in America's position um, at the end of World War I, and what makes the end of World War I radically unlike the end of World War II, where America is all in, and then, of course, also commits itself to NATO as a wholehearted partner of the British and the French and its West European allies in a security order. And I think that, to my mind, is what, is what really sort of captures the, the peculiarity of America's position after World War I. Adam Tews, come back to... a. Big, big player in your telling that I barely understood. I mean, we all have this vague notion of J.P. Morgan as the man who bankrolled a, a war, but it all seems different uh, after your book. I mean, here was J.P. Morgan in New York financing a war that the American people voted against in 1916. This was almost a private war. The role of J.P. Morgan in the first years of World War One is truly extraordinary, as you say, in the sense that J.P. Morgan serves as the banker to Britain, France, Russia, and then also to Italy. It becomes effectively the financial agent for, by far and away, the largest coalition of military powers the world had ever seen up to that point. And through the good offices of J.P. Morgan in 1915 and 1916, the European powers, without the say-so of the American government, and to a degree against the wishes of the American electorate, um, goes about mobilizing the American economy for war. Um, the orders placed by J.P. Morgan in 1916 uh, exceed the total volume, uh, the total value of American national exports in 1913. So we have a public-private partnership, if you like, um, in which the public, the governments, the war-fighting governments of Europe are using a private actor in the United States um, for the purposes of grand strategy. And the, the, 
the question is, of course, is how on earth is J.P. Morgan in this position? And the answer is that Wall Street um, at the beginning of the 20th century is not the big beast that we know today. It's a very underdeveloped financial market. America doesn't even have a Federal Reserve Bank until 1913 to arbitrate the movements of the American banking system in the interests of the American public. So J.P. Morgan is overwhelmingly the most powerful actor, financial actor in the United States totally dominate lending uh, on Wall Street and has very long-standing family connections to the city of London. And so J.P. Morgan is not just in this for business purposes. One has to be clear about this. The scale of the wager on Morgan's part goes well beyond anything that could conceivably be justified in terms of profit maximization. I mean, it's a huge gamble of his bank and the stability of the American financial system on a victory by one side in a war which in 1915, 1916, and even as late, frankly, as the summer of 1918, swings back and forth between both sides. So Morgan is a, in, himself engaged, if you like, in a kind of grand strategy in which he is committing a vast share of America and America's economy uh, to the to the European war effort. And this then, of course, for Washington, poses really very fundamental questions. Ever since the late 19th century, the American political class had been in deep, agonized discussions about how to manage the new monopoly capitalism, the new oligopolistic capitalism that has emerged in America in the late 19th century. The, the we're we're still the there, aren't we? I mean, we're still talking about and, it. And there are indeed fundamental analogies between the situation of banking power that, we're, that we face today in the early 21st century and then. We are today, too, talking about very basic questions of the relationship between public and private power. And at that moment, with the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, which takes a form, it's the government agency based in Washington, not a private bank like the Bank of England, for instance, which is you know, beholden to the City of London, the, the Wilson administration moves in a direction of asserting greater public control only then to find itself confronted with the biggest question, if you like, of American strategy, whether to join this war, being preempted by a private bank through its network of political, diplomatic and financial connections to Europe. And this is what makes the winter of 1916-1917 so decisive, because forever afterwards, people have said, oh, well, America was bound to slide into the war. J.P. Morgan said so. Money wins. Money talks. In the end, this was a foregone conclusion. All the evidence points in the different direction, which is that Wilson was making, Wilson and his administration were making a last-ditch effort to forestall precisely that outcome. If Morgan was allowed to go on mobilizing the American economy into 1917-1918 in this one-dimensional way, backing the Entente, it would indeed become, if you like, too big to fail. The Entente war effort would become too big to fail, and the United States would have no option. So precisely for that reason, the Fed attempts to prick the bubble in modern parlance. What they attempted to do was simply say, enough's enough, we've invested enough, this is beginning to destabilize the American economy, and therefore there should be no further loans, no further loans to the Entente from November 1916 onwards. It happens within weeks of Wilson's election, re-election as president. And this causes panic, as you might imagine, in London and Paris, because their war efforts hinge on America's finance. And it, the contention of the book is certainly, it opens with a sort of dizzy and counterfactual, a great what if. If Germany had understood this, if Germany had stood back and allowed this power struggle within the United States to play out, I think contemporaries themselves were profoundly convinced that the Europe that Britain and France would have been faced by the late spring or early summer of 1917 with a profound dilemma and might very well have been forced to negotiate on German terms. The extraordinary thing 
is that the Germans are totally convinced that American politics is dominated by money. And on that basis of that conviction, convince themselves that really they have nothing to lose by a further act of aggression against the United States. So it's a presumption on the part of the Germans that American politics is nothing but a tool of Wall Street money that allows them to engage in the gamble of launching the U-boats, which in turn make it impossible for Wilson to uphold this stand against American entry into the war. It's that dizzying counterfactual, that way in which, as it were, the Germans, by means of assuming a cynical position about American politics, make true their worst fears, that this book begins. This is where the plot gets incredibly thick and, and interesting, I mean, to this moment. But going back... Um, at the time, there were anti-war peaceniks. Randolph Bourne survives, in, in legend anyway, as, as people who said at the time, no, this is Wall Street's war and we have no business in it. But, mm. but coming forward, you know, this is so uh, resonant with feelings people still have about Bill Clinton's marrying Wall Street, and not to mention Barack Obama's marrying Wall Street and all that entails. I mean, <laughs> where do we go with this? What you're pointing to is, is obvious, it's one of the central facts of modern politics, which is that if you know, the war of the great struggles of politics in Europe have been dramas about socialism and fascism, the fascinating, but in a sense repetitive thing about American politics is that it has always been a question about the democratic governance of capitalism. And it has been that question in an acute and highly modern form ever since the 1870s, the 1880s, as the American economy began to shape, take the shape that we know today in the aftermath of the Civil War. And so these questions, these basic questions of how you govern a capitalist economy, which doesn't conform to some Jeffersonian ideal of the yeoman farmer and you know his, his uh, 40 acres and a mule, but is in fact dominated by gigantic, extremely powerful actors that that roam, you know, the capitalist world uh, and are red in tooth and claw and pursue their own interests ruthlessly, if necessary, taking advantage of the public purse. These questions are indeed the abiding questions of modern politics, and they're the, the laboratory for that is the United States. And we have experienced, as you're, as you're suggesting, in the period since 2010, another 2007 rather, another crash test of this model. Is democracy capable of asserting at least a minimum of the public interest against the particular interests of of a self-serving minority of, of empowered uh, business actors, of empowered economic actors, who in particular in given periods those actors are, it varies dramatically. One only has to look at the diminished status of a company like GM during the recent crisis to see how ruthlessly, as it were, capitalist history proceeds. The top dogs of preceding generations are now really just also rammed. Um, but nevertheless, that basic configuration is, is very reminiscent of the present. And indeed, my next book is going to be about the Great Recession as history. So an attempt precisely to think through these relationships between capitalist power and democracy in the, in the, in the, in the, in the near past, in the immediate past of the last 10 years or so. I can't wait. And I, I, I'm glad we've got to this point. You speak of World War I then, and it may be a bit of a euphemism, as a kind of public private partnership, but was decisively led by the private and J.P. Morgan. But so come back to Woodrow Wilson. Was he led by the money? I mean, we think of him as one of the strongest minds, Ph.D. president, great intellectual with a big vision. But did he become a tool of J.P. Morgan in the end or not? 
I think the crucial thing to recognize here is that this is not a struggle, the struggle between public power and capitalism, which has its greatest arena in the United States, is not, however, a struggle confined to the United States. And there is, I think, an abiding tendency on the part of American critics to think this too parochially, to think this in too narrowly national terms. And the drama of 1917 cannot be understood without the Germans. I mean, the thing that forces Wilson's hand is not J.P. Morgan. Uh, Wilson had J.P. Morgan uh, by the neck, by the throat. He was throttling J.P. Morgan's business in early 1917. Uh, what makes it impossible for him to continue on those lines is not the power balance within the United States, but the fact that Germany launches its U-boats against the American shipping um, from February 1917. And then engages in a spectacular uh, act of aggression in trying to mobilize the Mexicans for an invasion of Texas. And then furthermore doesn't even attempt to deny that, but in fact publicly admits that this was indeed uh, an act of German diplomacy. And at that point, no president is in a position to say, well, we'll stand back, we're too proud to fight, we'll do another Lusitania. At that point, America is clearly under attack. Hundreds of American seamen, thousands of American seamen's lives are at risk. America must defend itself. And um, at that point, the Germans force um, a Wilson's hand. This is not a drama that is acted out entirely within the boundaries of the United States. What gives Morgan, as it were, his wish is not his power over Washington, but the fact that Wilson loses his grip on the international diplomacy, and he's asked Germany repeatedly in the fall of 1916 and 1917 to hold off from any aggression, and he thinks he has a partner for this in the German ambassador in Washington, who himself is an opponent of German aggression against the United States, who sees the possibility that Germany might benefit from American arbitration, but is unable to stop the warlords in Berlin from engaging in this last bid to try and win the war by shutting down the transatlantic supply line. So the full complexity of this drama within the United States can't be understood unless we bring in these external factors. And the same is true in the, in the current crisis. I mean, um, there are various versions of this story, but there's no doubt at all that the battle between public and private power in the present in the United States is profoundly conditioned by the role of European banks, for instance, on the one hand, or the relationship between the United States and China with regard to its um, balance of payments on the other. So these are not, this is something that has to be understood in holistic terms as not simply a national drama, but one that is unfolding over really the vast terrain of, of global power and, and uh, economics. Adam Toos, we have almost 100 years now to look back on, on the consequences here. Start with the view of all this from the standpoint of World War II. I'm thinking specifically of kind of a fulfillment a generation later of Wilson's notion of American trusteeship, in a way, over a broken Europe and a broken world. Wilson's conception of the League of Nations is radically different from FDR's conception of the United Nations in the central respect that Wilson regarded the League, in my view, as a way of keeping distance um, between the United States and the world. He's celebrated, of course, as the great internationalist American president. But for him, I think what this involved was America finding a way of structuring international relations so that America could remain fundamentally remote and unentangled. And the difference between that position and FDR's is really, and Truman's even more, is radical because what FDR and Truman commit America to doing is a permanent boots-on-the-ground presence 
in two of the, of the in the two great arenas of global power, namely in Europe and in East Asia. And in both cases, America, after 45, makes a historically unprecedented commitment to a military, economic, financial, institutional, cultural engagement with what used to be regarded simply as the old world with which America really had much better nothing to do if it could possibly avoid it. And that's a really radical shift in my mind. So to my mind, World War II really shows a process of learning in the sense that America progresses well beyond the point at which uh, Wilson left it. So it's not really a fulfillment of, of Wilson so much as an overcoming of the limitations of Wilson. One of the implications of my book is that we reshuffle the path between the so-called internationalist Wilson, Wilsonians and the isolationists who are generally seen as his enemy. To my mind, there's a major streak of not exactly isolationism, but a sort of suprematism on the part of Wilson about America's relationship to the world. And that, I think, to me, marks the difference. World War II is the resolution of tensions that were left profoundly unaddressed by Wilson's project. And the why is it that this change happens? Well, one thing, of course, is that you face much more dangerous enemies than you did in World War I. Uh, Hitler on the one hand, Imperial Japan on the other, and then, of course, Stalin's Soviet Union. But the other thing that's happened is that America itself has changed, and it's changed in ways that Wilson would have found, I think, quite horrifying. I mean, Wilson is a southern conservative liberal in the 19th century vein. So for him to... to to face America's actual prospect in the 20th century would have been a gloomy thing indeed, because America emerges from World War II as a military superpower, as a permanent military superpower, which is something that he would have regarded with extreme distaste, far too European, frankly. America becomes to look like a European military superpower. And secondly, it's a state with an enormous big government machine, which he as a liberal of the 19th century mode would not have been favorable to, in the, certainly not to the extent that we see it in the New Deal. One of the reasons why America can broker deals like the Marshall Plan is that they're small beans, really, in the gigantic pool of American government expenditure after 1945. So it's both change in the international arena, bigger and more dangerous enemies of a truly global nature, and on the other hand, change within the American state, which brings about this fundamental shift. Speak of the ghost in present-day readers of China in this picture of an emergent manufacturing, banking, financing power that hasn't played its hand yet in, in, in the councils of war and peace. United States in 1914 and China in 2014. Mm. Now, you're absolutely right. I mean, in writing this book, I, like everyone in the current moment in the West and indeed all over the world, had, as it were, the question of China hanging over me. Uh, how how does history enable us to understand the drama that is that is happening in front of our eyes? Because there's a sort of residual Eurocentric um, hubris in thinking that what happened 100 years ago is more important than what's happening now. It's not obvious that it is. I mean, this is a an epic shift in world affairs that we are living through literally on a day-by-day -day basis. So this question was very pressing for me. And I think the central point that that I came away with when having thought about this um, is that the crucial thing is not to think of China's rise now as fundamentally similar to America's rise to power, uh, as analogous to it, and to look, as it were, for the basic structural similarities and to focus through the exclusion of other things on that sense of repetition. I mean, the basic point that I start with at the beginning of the book is that when America rose to power, it didn't supersede British power. 
right? So there's a, there's a great temptation to think of a sort of series through history of great powers, one great power replacing another. China now replacing the United States, which replaced Britain, which supplanted France, which supplanted the Habsburgs, and so on and so forth. A sort of succession of imperial powers, each essentially doing something similar to the last one, but perhaps bigger in a different geographic space with slightly different preoccupations of its own, but fundamentally as a kind of continuity, there's a slot in the world system, if you like, into which a power fits, and what changes is which power's in that slot. And what I really came to realize in thinking about the early 20th century is that that's not the case for the relationship between the United States as it emerges during World War I and the British Empire before. The British Empire is totally unlike, was totally unlike, the kind of system that America establishes in its pomp in the 1940s and 1950s. The American British Empire was more wide-ranging geographically. It involved settlement on a huge scale, but it was much thinner in other respects. It, Britain never had the kind of overwhelming economic and military power that the United States does command in the 1940s and 1950s. So my essential takeaway is that each one of these moments is as far as possible, needs as far as possible to be thought not, um, not as similar but as different. And what makes the difference is the broader setting in which this change is happening. So we need to be thinking now, not I think about the ways in which this is analogous, but what it is about the current moment in which China's power is undoubtedly rising, which, which makes this moment distinctive and probably different from anything we've ever experienced before. I mean, one fundamental difference is that China is much bigger, right? It actually constitutes one-sixth of the world's population. America never came close to that. China's geographic location is radically different. A, you know, a completely irreplaceable advantage of the United States is it faces both Pacific and the Atlantic. China doesn't do that. I mean, it has to struggle its way out famously through the South China Sea. It's struggling with states like Vietnam to assert itself in its immediate vicinity. America never faced problems of this type. China is one of the oldest, greatest civilizations on Earth, coming back into itself. America's role around 1900 was radically different. It was essentially a backward settler civilization for much of the 19th century and never becomes a civilization like China's, can claim to be at several moments in the millennia of its history before the current moment. So there was a radically different cultural dynamic um, to China's rise at this moment. All of this, to my mind, means that we need to, as it were, rethink the problem of power, not simply slot China into our existing models of what power looks like. President Obama, with respect to the Middle East, and he's talking about Israelis and Arabs and Palestinians and Sunnis and Shias, uh, has, has spoken this kind of Wilsonian prayer for peace without victory, a sense of um, let's, just, let's just get beyond it. Uh, and it sounds both uh, wonderful and forlorn and maybe impossible. It's all Wilson. It was the Wilson before he entered the war. What to make of that connection? Well, I think uh, you are right that it's a really dramatic shift from the rhetoric of another American president 10 years ago who embarked um, in the Middle East on a much more dramatic program of state remaking, but very much more in a tradition of Republican internationalism. It was described at the time by many people, this is uh, George Bush's internationalism, was described by many people as a sort of latter-day Wilsonianism. I think that's a complete misunderstanding of what either Bush or Wilson were really about. 
Um, it was, however, an ambitious project of remaking the world um, in America's image, in the image of what they took to be a progressive uh, democratic uh, model. And you're absolutely right that the current horrendous situation in the Middle East has produced from Washington a a response in what I think you're right in saying is a truly classic Wilsonian mode. In other words, let this burn itself out. We have we have nothing useful that we can do here except perhaps to hold the ring and to prevent uh, escalation. And I have to say that from the point of view of Israel, this would um, suggest to me that we have reached a point of possibly no return in our relationship with that state because for America to be declaring itself to that extent um, as it were, not exactly disinterested in the outcome, but not, as it were, fully backing victory by one side and by Israel in particular, is a fairly dramatic turn of events. And the hope, of course, of this kind of position is always, as it was with Wilson and his advisors, that if you announce this to the actors themselves, they will come to their senses. Right? The risk of a policy of engagement, as we've discovered repeatedly, is that the risk of putting your money and putting your, your backing behind one or other party in a highly conflictual situation is that the consequence of doing that is that they become more radical and less reasonable. And that makes, as it were, a fundamentally satisfactory long-term settlement of the situation impossible. And I think the best construction that one might be able to put on Obama's uh, position at this point is that by signaling this greater distance, um, he is hoping, like Wilson and his cohorts did, that that by itself will be enough to force the conflicting parties to recognize that they have nothing or very little to gain by continuing. Um, that does, however, of course, mean that it's an application of influence. It requires accepting a kind of detachment and the cost and this was always the argument against Wilson, are potentially enormous, and the risks that the size with which you may, of course, deep down harbor profound sympathies may not prevail. But in World War I, the British and the French might not actually have prevailed against the Germans, and how then, in retrospect, would the United States have felt about the outcome of that war? How could um, the United States really have taken that risk with its long-term interests? And I think all of these... Um, all of these considerations must be flooding around and flooding through the minds of policymakers in, in Washington right now. But it's, it's very difficult to know um, where to intervene, uh, who you pick, and who might your parties be. There's a lot of talk, of course, of Kurdish town, of an emergent Kurdish state as being the sort of ally that we might be able to do business with. But there is also, of course, desperate echoes in that of picking another Israel. Um, to flank American policy there, uh, to, as it were, to find another privileged partner uh, for democratic politics. And I think we've seen um, where that kind of unconditional backing for that kind of actor can potentially lead. So, I mean, I think these are, one can, one can only sympathize with the uh, position of the Washington administration at this moment. And the very least, as a historian, point out that there are, as you're saying, uh, deep continuities between the position they're taking and the repertoire of American policy through the 20th century. Adam Tuz, you remind us why we love historians. Um, it's such a huge pleasure to read this book, The Deluge, about a century and maybe more of repercussions of World War I. It's a huge privilege to, to be able to talk with you about it at length. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on.